You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. It's really nice to be here. And I, and my, well, my family and I, you've maybe seen us hang around. We kind of lurk in the back as best as possible because we've been aware of, of what you've been working on as a congregation for on a couple of years now. And the first time we dropped by, we were over in that part of the building, and it was awkward because there was, let me see, the Browns and us. And so it was kind of like, oh boy, oh boy, here we are. But it was like, it was like early COVID first week. But the reason we stopped by is because we, we just, read a couple of things that you put on the internet about what you were going for as a church. And we were like, that's awesome. That's brilliant. The people who are putting their energy and their heads behind this, they, they think hard about the text. They think hard about the life-giving message of the gospel and, and wanting to think about not just saying that into the ether, but the, the people who are putting this thing together, they, they want to figure out how to say that to people so that they'll hear it. They're empathetic and human. And so we've been dropping in off and on for a couple of years and keeping tabs and watching what's developing here. That's just kind of the, the stage of life that we're in. I, I go to a lot of churches and, and travel around and film things and do different stuff. So we're really like just going to a church has not been a luxury. We've been able to enjoy for the last couple of years, but we've dropped in here as much as anywhere, and you have great leadership. It's also amazing to see the evolution of that sense of community. That is not easy to achieve in 2021, and everyone who's sitting here has put intentional, obvious effort into thinking outside of yourselves, getting to know other people, making people feel welcome when they walk in. The word is preached clearly. Everybody is helping out with all the work that goes into everything behind it. It's it's neat to see what that has matured into, and I'm excited to see where it goes next. You are part of uh, a special thing, and something that, not that my opinion matters a tremendous amount, but something that I'm really excited about. And so we are thankful to God for what he's doing in our community through redeeming grace and through you guys. And, um, it's cool to get to be here and hang out with you in this way as well. I wasn't expecting Josh to be here, so now I'm terrified. <laughs> no, I think it's going to be okay. I did have this intellectual dilemma, though, this read-the-room dilemma, where I was like, well, I'm going to reference a YouTube video to start. Do I show the YouTube video, or do we just describe it? I thought, well, since it is a terrifying video where someone almost dies, I'm just going to go describe it. So here's what happens. We have a, a problem in our family where we we really like the, the train wreck YouTube. We really enjoy the, the compilations of things that go horribly wrong on the internet. And lately, the YouTube algorithm keeps feeding us these videos about people who like got crazy lucky, like almost died, nearly averted incident. And there's this one that keeps standing out to me. It's It's got to be like... Vietnam or Thailand or something, Southeast Asia. And there are these little kids, and they're on a security camera, just, it looks like they're maybe in like a, a, an old an auto repair shop or filling station or something. I mean, little kids, like, 
four and six, something like that. They're just goofing around, they're doing nothing. And you got the security camera style footage, and you see a guy walk into this shot. Doesn't look like he knows them, he's just walking down the street. Glances at the kids, acknowledges them, looks up, gets that body language like, uh oh, something's about to happen, and then you see it, and well, we're gonna spend a lot of time, time talking about an incredible, amazing mother today, so I think a little shout out to dads is okay. The dad reflexes kick in, which is like one of the like three things we contribute to this whole equation. And this guy just immediately analyzes the whole situation, does this mental math in his brain, like the beautiful mind with all of the calculus and everything spinning, and just that quick, he runs over, he grabs these two kids who aren't his, he picks the spot as this runaway vehicle is careening toward them, now on its side, and a tire has come off the, of this vehicle. He picks a spot under the edge of the awning of this structure and gets small with the kids, and the car, it, it practically grazes his backside. The tire goes right over his head. Like, if you had any longer hair than mine, it would take it off. And then the, the structure collapses, but he's right underneath the one post so all of that tin roof falls here, there's a vehicle right here, a tire went right there, and there's rubble here, and here's this guy with these two kids. I mean, there was one spot that he could be positioned that would save those two kids. He positions in any other way, and it's the day that family refers to as the accident. You know what I'm talking about, some of you have the accident in your family history. I do. But in that moment, that perfect positioning is what did it. What we're talking about this time of year, what you guys are talking about right now, as you work through the first part of the book of Matthew, what Matthew is talking about as he introduces the idea of the Messiah and as he throws <laughs> tremendous energy at pointing out that the Messiah is not some random new religious claimant, that the Messiah is not some new expression of things or an upstart that just came out of nowhere, but that the Messiah is the fulfillment of everything that happened before. What Matthew is doing here is saying Jesus is uniquely, perfectly positioned to save, to deliver. He knew exactly what he had to be and where he had to stand and what he had to do as the culminating redemptive agent in God's redemptive plan to get everything where it needed to be because everything else was going to be death. He is the one who knew exactly the way and was exactly the uniquely, perfectly built Savior and Messiah for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, he's got the right pedigree because Matthew and God didn't just make this thing up out of thin air and be like, yeah, we tried a religion, it didn't work out, we're going to try a new one. Jesus is going to be in charge of this one, we'll see if it goes better. Sorry about the abortive first plan, we really thought that would work out more. Now, Hebrews 8 says that that's not how it worked out. God knew exactly what he was doing. The problem has always been with human sin. God has always been in the process of redeeming. So, so what we see from Matthew is that Jesus is perfectly descended. He's from exactly the right people. He is born of the line of Abraham, which God said from the beginning in a promise, a covenant, an unbreakable deal he made with Abraham, that Abraham, no matter how much of an idiot you might be, no matter how many dumb mistakes you make, it does not matter how salacious or stupid your mistakes are, this is a promise you can take to the bank. 
You know that whole human problem? You know that car that's careening toward you with the tire coming off and the building that's about to collapse? That human problem that metaphorically will crush all of humanity? I'm going to build a great nation out of you, Abraham. And somewhere on down that line, you're going to be blessed, not just that, but also a blessing is going to come to all the nations through you. Jesus, as you've been discussing here, is perfectly positioned to be the fulfillment of that unbreakable promise to Abraham. Jesus, as you've been discussing here, isn't just the descendant of Abraham, he's the descendant of David. Well, God made another promise that was unbreakable in the Old Testament. He made a promise to King David, the great king, the legendary big dog of the whole Old Testament, the guy who had a heart after God's, even though he was also a mess sometimes. And you might remember that David went to God in a moment of great appreciation for who he is, and he was like, hey, I'm going to build an incredible building for you where you can dwell with us permanently. And God was like, cool, yeah, that, you know what, we're going to get to that. That's going to be super. It's going to be great. Maybe we'll have your kid do that. But how about instead of doing that right now, I give you a promise. And the promise he gives to David is that there's going to be this eternal kingdom born out of the line of David. And it's going to be a bunch of human kings, and that's great and all. But this eternal throne will ultimately be occupied by a king who isn't going to die. Will ultimately be occupied by a king who is perfectly just and perfectly right and straightens out everything that's broken and busted about humanity. A king who you can ascribe all power and authority to because there won't be a successor. If you get a good king now, you're like, well, just put him in charge of everything then. It'll be great. That king's going to get old and die, and then you're going to have to deal with his kid. So you've got to be careful about this. Not so with this promised king. The God, the, the God of Abraham tells David, hey, it doesn't matter how stupid you are or how many dumb things you do, and David really tested that. <coughs> this promise is permanent, and it's happening. The Redeemer will sit on David's throne and will do so forever. So Jesus is descended from Abraham, which makes him perfectly positioned to shield from the calamity that is coming and to redeem and give life. But that's not enough. The story of the Bible, the story of existence and reason says there's got to be more. He's also perfectly positioned as the son of David, the king, to be in the one possible spot that is needed. So Jesus has to hit two targets here right off the bat, and you've already talked about both of those. Well, according to the book of Matthew, there's a third target that's illustrated in an odd way, but when you think about it, you understand why this positioning was necessary as well. And that is, not just the son of Abraham, not just the son of David, but in order to be rightly positioned to save and deliver to fix the human problem, this Messiah also has to be the son of a virgin. We're in Matthew chapter 1. I had, I wouldn't even say like a heart attack, just like a little flutter in there when I saw that it was... Uh, Verses 1 through 17 in the bulletin. That was last week. This week we're going to start in verse 18. 1 through 17 would have been fun too. I know some of those stories. I mean, it would have been more of an adventure than this, which I actually prepared for. So some of you are like, did you though? Because so far. No, no. This is what it looks like when I try. I'm so, so sorry. Matthew 1, verse 18. Here we go. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. <laughs> But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Well, right off the bat, it's not tough to 
step away from the big, gigantic theological questions that we're going to get to, the big questions about what it is to be a human and what our circumstances are and what it would take to deliver us from failure and time and entropy and getting old and death and all of those things. Very, very interesting, very important. But right off the bat, that's not the first thing that pops to you in this passage. Something very human pops to you in this passage. I'm looking around, I'm seeing how some of y'all are sitting together. It looks like there are a lot of married people here. Awesome. That's been like my favorite thing in all of life. My marriage and the fact that we made life and kids together. What a beautiful, amazing gift and blessing that has been. It's something where you kind of give your heart to it if you're doing it right. I mean, I, mean, I think. Nobody nodded. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> you're going to be talking about that after. The idea that, that these guys are in this long engagement period and, and then, oh no, like, you're pregnant. That's not, that's not how that's supposed to work out because the way engagement periods worked here, they wouldn't have even been physically in the same zip code as each other during this time. Families would have been involved. Previous arrangements would have been involved. It would have predated physical maturity, emotional maturity by a long ways. These engagements were not quick at this point. But an engagement, which was a more familial affair than how we do it now, which is kind of just like you find somebody you really like, and you can, I, I like the way we do it now better. I'm not advocating for this other way. But it was a more familial thing. And so it wasn't even like just, oh man, this would be a disappointment for the two of them. It would be, oh, this is a disappointment for everyone. Oh, this is a disappointment for the extended family. Oh, this is ugly. What do you do? And at that point, everybody is put in a position where you, you start figuring out how you're gonna save face here because the family of the bride has not delivered on their end of the promises and expectations were high for the family of the groom in this culture as well. And so what do you do? I mean, on paper, you're reserved for each other. You're, you're married in every way except actually coming together and doing life together and having a household together and being together intimately. And so. This is calamitous, ruinous. On the theological side, the attentive reader is like, what? Son of Abraham? What? Son of David? Is he going to be able to scoop up the kids and position perfectly? Because this is starting to look like the perfect positioning for the thing we absolutely need to redeem everything that's broken. Could there finally be hope after hundreds of years of silence? But the, the person who's not thinking super theologically and is more like just a human is going to read this verse and be like, oh, you know, oh, yeah, I had some friends that happened too. Or, oh, man, I walked that road. Or, oh, can you imagine? Well, Joseph doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't do the math on this. And so I, what would be the logical conclusion here apart from some sort of supernatural confirmation? You know, Occam's Razor, right? You've heard of this one? The guy in the 15th century who thought real hard about how to know if something's true or not. Like the simplest explanation is usually the best. We get the youngsters here. I don't know which conversations you've had with them yet or not. So I'll just say, everyone who is of age, I think, knows what the simplest explanation is here for the predicament we are in. It would be exceptional for there to be any other explanation. Joseph is a man of reason. He's also a man of character. It says in verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. That was the classiest thing you could do. Modern readers will look at that and be like, oh, come on, cut her some slack. 
You can make this thing go. It, it, don't picture modern love. Don't picture modern arrangements or engagements or anything like that. Uh, this would be a wonderful opportunity to put things back together in a difficult situation given modern expectations. Here, it was miles beyond classy for him to have in mind to approach it the way he's approaching it instead of it making it a community issue or even having her brought up on some kind of social charges. <coughs> he's not gonna do that because he's a good dude. Now, Luke's account focuses pretty heavily on, on Mary. Not pretty heavily, really heavily on Mary. You go to Luke 1, I mean, you hear, you hear her song, which we're gonna talk about later. You hear the angel's declaration to her, but Matthew gives us a, a more brief account and it interestingly focuses just as much on the human response to what has happened supernaturally in the life of Mary. More on that in just a minute. Verse 20, but after he considered this, something supernatural does happen. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We don't know a whole bunch about Joseph. We don't get a lot of details about him moving further. Uh, a lot of people who study the Bible theorize that Joseph probably died before Jesus' public ministry. Now, if we're to go off of what we know from extra-biblical sources about what love, marriage, and family would have looked like in the first century in Galilee, it's a pretty safe bet that Mary was a very young lady, like early high school kind of young lady, like pre-driver's license kind of young lady. That would be about betrothal and marriage age in this culture. Again, we have modern standards for when it seems appropriate for people to get married. We also live on average twice as long as people lived then. Different time, different expectation. Let the reader understand. On the other side of the equation, a man getting married at this time might not be married until they were in their 30s and would have been viewed as fully achieving adult male headship. And so the age gap here, if it were normative, would be huge. So it's no surprise that Joseph is out of the picture, that he isn't at the cross later on, and that the focus as we go through the life story of Mary in the four Gospels, or on the life story of Jesus, uh, it's going to include Mary from time to time, but not Joseph. Now, this is kind of Joseph's moment to shine, and he delivers. Mary, first and foremost, should be celebrated, and we've got a lot more to talk about regarding her. But just one more moment to pause and reflect on the character of Joseph and the work that God did in his life. This is remarkable. Put yourself in this situation. Mary famously says in Luke chapter 1, after being told this very difficult thing. Yeah, your life's going to be turned upside down, but it's going to be for this amazing kingdom work to bring the Messiah into the world. She says, you remember this, right? May it be unto me as you have said. I wouldn't say that. I would argue a lot more. I, I, she's an amazing person. Joseph effectively, though we don't have the quote from him, says the exact same thing to God's messenger and to God's will. Okay. If the kid's name's going to be Jesus, the kid's name's going to be Jesus. I'm in. If I'm to marry somebody who's been culturally an object of shame, okay, I'm doing it. All this took place, aha, uh -huh, 
Here we go. Matthew's going to clue us in on why this matters. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, you guys have hung out in Matthew a bunch. He did a, a series on the parables, which was excellent. I checked in on a bunch of those. I, I'm not just, like, I don't want to make the whole thing like weird, because like he's actually here and he was supposed to not be here. <laughs> Josh is really good at this. Really good at this. The amount of time, energy, thought, precision, care for you that it takes to week in and week out, not just say Bible at you, but say Bible with you as people who he loves as a pastor. It, it's a massive responsibility. It takes so much more effort than just Googling a sermon and repeating it at people. And I super appreciate the way you come at it. He did a great job with that material on Matthew from earlier in the year. And you might remember from his teaching on that, that one of the things that Matthew is very interested in is demonstrating to his Jewish audience that Jesus is the completion of like everything about the Old Testament. One of the ways that comes up on my silly little podcast that I do to try to illustrate this point is it's like the Old Testament gives you the da 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 da. Now I knew somebody would do it if I just was on my tiptoes long enough. Thank you, because I would have stood there for another hour. I would have. I was committed. Da da. Yeah, just come on, finish the thing. The Old Testament has all of these narrative arcs that it just throws forward in history all of these story points that are are beautifully crafted and then you get to the end of the old testament and it looks like a mid-season cliffhanger or like ah the hobbit 2 which they divided in an unnatural place you can't, what are you doing there's an obvious that just can't be the end and for those of you who saw the second hobbit movie first i'm sorry second <laughs> I mean, what if there was no Hobbit 3? It's like, yeah, the dragon's going to fly off toward the thing, and, and uh, Dr. Watson's just going to stand there and be like, what have we done? Okay, bye. <laughs> but that's how the Old Testament reads. Nobody who's reading this with, with natural eyes, with, with eyes that just encounter the story, like religious eyes aside, just read the thing for what it is. Nobody is going to read the Old Testament and get to the end and be like, that's, that's pretty much... That's that. That was awesome. No, even Jewish people today read the Old Testament and they think, well, no, there's a next thing. Like all of that deliverance is still coming. All of the promises we get throughout the major and minor prophets, everything that the Psalms point to, all of the narrative arcs of the historical parts of the Old Testament, they all point to a next thing. It's still going to happen. Matthew, as Josh has rightly pointed out repeatedly, is the completion, not just of certain predictions, but of the whole story. The whole thing rounds out in Jesus, and that satisfying dun-dun is all in him. The Old Testament presents the tension of, metaphorically speaking, two little kids just walking around being brother and sister in Southeast Asia as a car gets out of control in the rain, and then they huddle up getting ready to get murdered by this vehicle. That's it. They can eat the rest of the video. Somebody do something. How does this thing end? Well, in Christ, there's the end. So we get a whole bunch of these passages 
where Matthew connects the dots, takes the reader by the hand and says, remember this story that you're steeped in? The story of humanity, the story of our past, the story of what we know God's already done? Okay, just come on over here. Here's how Jesus completes that thing. So if you just skim around, right now you have your Bibles in front of you, if you just skim around and look for indented stuff throughout the next couple of pages of the book of Matthew, you'll get a sense of just how often Matthew connects the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But this one specifically is a reference to Isaiah 7. It's one of the most debated passages in all of the book of Matthew. We're going to have to lean into that a little bit. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if we don't go look at Isaiah 7, and we just operate off of what we're seeing here, the message is correct, it's beautiful, it's completing, it just works very, very neatly. And without going and looking at the text, you would assume that what Matthew is citing here is some sort of Nostradamus-style prediction from the Old Testament, where somebody from the Old Testament said, and hence, in the future, there shall be a moment when humanity will be aching and hurting. And on that day, there will be born unto you a virgin, and the virgin will give birth to a son, and the son will be called God with us, and then he will live a perfect life, and he will go to the cross and die on the cross as a sacrifice for all of our sins, and everyone will know that that one born under those circumstances, living that such a life, is the one who is to be called the Messiah, the fulfillment, and he will reign on David's throne forever. You would think that would be the context. As we look closer at it, we will see it is not that kind of fulfillment. It's not the kind where somebody says, ah, uh, yeah, I got a Broncos 28, Lions 18. And then if it turns out that way, you're like, you were right. And then when it inevitably doesn't, because no doubt my team is going to lose to a 1-11 team, <laughs> then you would say, no, that person is absolutely wrong. This is different. We'll talk about how in just a minute. But if we take this for what it is in Matthew, first of all, it's the third positioning that we get regarding Jesus. He is the son of Abraham, has to be descended of Abraham. He is the son of David, has to be because he's going to sit on David's throne. He is born of a virgin. He has to be the son of a virgin. Why? Well, for a whole lot of reasons. But for Matthew, the most obvious reason is because it is a fulfillment of what happens in the Old Testament, or what was lobbed forward. Now, it's worth noting that for Luke, the answer to that question is a little different. For Luke, the answer to the question, why is it so important for our positioning that Jesus be the son of a virgin? Luke's answer is, well, because that demonstrates that he's the son of God. Theological positioning. Matthew agrees. Luke's answer is not mutually exclusive. But Luke is talking to a larger audience that would have included a whole bunch of people who aren't really into Jewish things, don't have any familiarity with this Old Testament story that I keep referencing. And so for them, they'd be like, yeah, we have a notion of deity. We have a notion of humanity. Seems like there's a really big gap between those two things. And Luke is trying to demonstrate Jesus bridges the gap between our finite humanity and the infinite God. Matthew is speaking to people who already have a religion, already have a religious context, already have a narrative, and he's trying to bridge the gap for them, pointing out, you already believe this. This completes the story you're already steeped in. So let's go look at Isaiah chapter 7 before we consider more of why it matters that he is the son of a virgin. 
Isaiah chapter 7, as I hinted at a moment ago, it doesn't read quite the way you expect. It reads like a prophet speaking to an ancient Near Eastern military political situation. Now, I know there are a bunch of you here in the room who've been around this for a long time, and we start to get into the Old Testament, and you're like, ah, I remember that from Sunday school. I remember hearing about this one one time. I know there are others of you here who maybe even right now, you're going, this is so much. This story is so big. We're talking about Israel and like 2,500 years ago and prophecy and prediction, virgins. How does all of this fit together? To you, I would say, hang with me for a minute. I think even if you're not super familiar with this walking in, it's meant to be understood. And I think you're going to track with how the narrative fits together. So don't despair. In Matthew chapter 7, we're hearing about these characters. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. Well, what? Like we're doing Christmas carols or Christmas, like we're singing Christmas songs and you get the candles and it's not heartwarming at all. It doesn't make me want to open gifts. There's no manger. How is this a Christmas passage? And the answer is, well, nobody really knew that this was a Christmas passage until Jesus was born and Matthew pointed it out hundreds of years later. Now, the original audience to Isaiah would have read this as, here is a prophet, here is a God-ordained critic of what we're doing politically, speaking into our awful decision-making that is antithetical to the work of God. And so we do have a political situation here. We have an existential threat to the city of God, to Jerusalem. We have weird alliances between the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel and some other little countries and nation states further north. The grand empire of Assyria, who's awful, is pressing in and everybody's scrambling to try to figure out how to fit things together to maybe defend the walls and the throne of David is in jeopardy. But remember, there's no deliverance for those metaphorical two little kids. There's no deliverance for humanity from sin and death and aging and all the things that break us without David's throne being intact. So we got a problem here. Well, now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Okay, if you don't know what that means. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. Ahaz is the king in Jerusalem. Shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shabshabshabshabab, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, so now this prophet, Isaiah, for whom the book is named, is being sent out to talk to this king. It's a bigger deal than it sounds like. You didn't just get to walk up to people all the time whenever you wanted. That's why there's instruction in the text for how to approach royalty or where to find him. Say to him, hey, be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, let us divide it amongst ourselves, and make the son of Tabiel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
It will not take place, it will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Okay, that's a lot, and that's overwhelming. That's okay. The sum up version is this. God sends Isaiah to Ahaz, who's not a particularly great king, and is like, reassure him that in your moment of peril, as the metaphorical car is careening toward the metaphorical children and it seems like all is lost, God has not forgotten you. God sees what's going on, not even because you're that good, not even because you asked him to solve the problem, but God sees it and he will keep his promises. God will deliver. You would think that Ahaz would be like, wow, brother, I needed that. Because the world, much like many of us feel right now, is just burning down. People are crazy. It's violent. It's angry. <coughs> Our words are out of control with each other. It's partisan. It's hostile. Our leaders are clowns. The emperors have no clothes. Whichever team you like. The emperors have no clothes. It's a sham. We see it. Our money is fake. Our stuff is temporal. People have it out for us. For crying out loud, they're throwing people in camps again. We look at the world right now, and we feel some of that same knot in our stomach. What is going on? Everything is shaky kind of feeling that Ahaz and everybody was feeling here. So if somebody came along right now in an incredible way, said, God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you in your age, in your hurt, in your confusion about what's going on in planet Earth. He hasn't forgotten you in the hostility that you feel even from your own family over issues that people have paid a lot of money to get us to hate each other over. God hasn't forgotten you. It's not over. He sees your plight. He sees your situation. And he will deliver. Hopefully, our response would be to have our hearts softened, to be reassured, to take a deep breath and say, okay, yeah, I needed that. It's not Ahaz's response. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not. I'll not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. So he tries to sound all holy. Like he rejects what God said to do, but he tries to frame it in really righteous language. Do, do you not understand your predicament? Do you not understand that there's a speeding car careening toward you and you have absolutely nowhere to go? And there's only one position unknown to you where you could even stand to take shelter and endure this thing? Do you not get it? Like, really? It, performative piety is what you think is needed in this moment. So he just takes a pass on God's offer of grace. Gross. Then Isaiah said, here's a payoff. You've endured all this story. Now we're getting to it. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Oh, dang, this is what Matthew is quoting. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to his son and will call him Emmanuel. And then he goes on to describe some other stuff that Matthew doesn't quote. He'll eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. And he will bring the king. Uh, he will bring the king of Assyria. And then a whole bunch of other stuff. Judgments and predictions 
about the immediate future happen. So if you're paying attention here, then I understand we've jumped to two very disparate parts of the Bible, but Matthew made us do it. <laughs> if you're paying attention here, the thing in Isaiah, it, it only sounds good for like a minute, but it seems to come with a whole lot of like judgment and other stuff. It seems very locked in time. Isn't that how that read to you? It's okay to admit it. Didn't it read like this was a thing that was being said in an ancient Near Eastern political squabble as an eminent threat came from Assyria and God's judgment is coming with it, but there will be a sign and it will involve a virgin and it will involve a child. I think we can't read the text and pretend that it wasn't directed at Ahaz. But I think we can't read Matthew and we can't look at the whole of Matthew and the whole of who Christ is and not acknowledge that there was clearly a greater intended fulfillment of this prophecy. It wasn't just for Ahaz. It wasn't just in that moment to make a point. It becomes a type, an illustration of a later thing. Do you guys remember The Matrix? Well, there's a new movie coming out from that series. So yeah, you've probably seen it being advertised lately. We watched that for the first time in like, I don't know, 20 years recently. <coughs> and I just watched it and I was like, wow. They are really slathering on the Jesus imagery here. It's not, it's not even subtle. Like, it's, it's every two minutes of screen time, there's something here that is the Bible, Gospel, Jesus, and also tons of people getting shot a lot and stuff, so I'm not necessarily recommending the movie. But nobody would watch The Matrix and be like, that's a prophecy about the second coming of Jesus and about how Christ is. No, but Jesus is the obvious thematic completion to the tension set up and the characters set up in the first, not the second or third, exclusively the first Matrix. It's just, it's there. I mean, the, the, the characters are a type of the characters that are the Godhead. Likewise, there's kind of two types of fulfillment of prophecy when we talk about fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. Josh has done a great job of explaining this, working through the book of Genesis. One is that Nostradamus predictive prophecy. This thing will happen, then this thing will happen, then this thing will happen. That's kind of, in the immediate sense, what the prophecy from Isaiah to Ahaz is. But there's another kind of prophecy in the Old Testament, and it's, it's storytelling, it's thematic. It says this is this way, and this is this way, and that all begs for this. It's da 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 Thank you for doing that. da da prophecy. It's, it's the kind that, that if you can read a story in any way, if you can trace a, a theme, a motif in any kind of good narrative, it's always going somewhere. And when Jesus, a few chapters later in Matthew 5, 17, says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think I came to get rid of the religion you have. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. That's exactly what he is pointing out. And he says it right at the beginning of his public ministry to quell any questions about things just like this. Are you really the son of David? Are you really the son of Abraham? Are you really the son of a virgin? Are you really positioned to deliver on the thing that not just the Jewish people, but all people need, which is the perfectly positioned savior to avoid all of the calamity and to deliver where no one else could deliver? Are you really that? And are you, or are you something different from what God has been setting it all up for? Matthew 5, 17, he puts any of those questions to rest, and he says, no, I am exactly that. Son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of a virgin. What we'll see as we get a little further in this next time around, the son of God. 
Yeah, I am the one you've been looking for. I'm not a departure. I'm the completion. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the ba-ba to the ba-ba-da-da-da-da. I am the thematic completion to all of the stories, all the resolutions, all of the morals, all of everything points to Christ as the complete and comprehensive fulfillment. You might run into somebody on the internet who will talk to you about the whole virgin birth this time of year and be like, oh, Christians don't even read that right. They, they go to the book of Isaiah, they just lift the thing wildly out of context. And that's really just talking about a young lady. It's just talking about Ahaz. There's nothing more. And so that person, I would say, like, did you ever watch a movie that was good? Did you have to read any novels in high school or college? Like, good ones? Because it's almost like you're intentionally being tone deaf to how stories work. The story clearly points to Christ. And the virgin birth, <clears throat> specifically. Why does it matter? I mean, that's kind of the billion-dollar question, though, right? I mean, you've been around church for a while. Maybe some of you haven't been around church for a while. But there's kind of a formula to this thing, to the, the talking part. We would like you to listen, so we try to think of something that we can say. They'd be like, oh, I can connect with that. We can keep coming back to that illustration, that point. So we can always ground it and have it here. That's part one. Then part two is we look at a text, and we try to be really careful with the text and acknowledge the challenges of the text, the natural questions that would come up. We try to acknowledge where it fits in the bigger question or in the, the bigger story, the bigger narrative, the context, so that you're equipped to think about it for yourself and go with it, go where you need to. But then there's also this last part that happens when we do this part of the service where we talk about the Bible, and that is, well, why are we talking about this? Why does it matter? What does it mean? Sometimes that comes down pretty simply to, oh, well, in light of what we've looked at, in light of what the text says, you probably ought to do this. This is the right new behavior. But more often than not, what we see when we look carefully at a text is, wow, if we hadn't looked carefully at that text, we might have thought this other thing. But as we look at it, we realize that God is actually like this. And here's the beauty on display of who he is and what he's done and the mastery of his plan. And first and foremost, this is one of those kind of texts. The bottom line, the take home is going to be marvel at the sovereign work of God. Marvel at the creativity God demonstrated in solving the human problem, in solving sin, failure, aging, death, regret, screw ups, all of it. Look at what he's done to redeem this. Why does it matter? If Christ, was if Christ was born of a virgin, that means that he is the son of God. It means that he is fully deity in nature. But all the gospel authors go out of their way to describe him eating meals, touching things, spitting some mud, rub his fingers in there. He's tactile. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He's not something that people imagined or occasionally through seances could summon and interact with briefly. No, 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 he's there. If you, if you crucify him, he bleeds until he dies. If you stab him right there in the side, the blood and water will flow if he's dead. No, he's, he's straight up killable. He's a person <laughs> like you or me. So he's all God and he's all man. How do you be that without a virgin birth? How do you be that through a natural birth? I, I, 
I got a son. He's great. He's home right now wearing his Charizard pajamas that he's had on for three state days, laying around with a headache, feeling kind of cruddy. Don't worry, he recovered from something that could be spread like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, so it ain't that. I saw some of you recoil. <laughs> he's great. He's like the nicest little boy I've ever met in my whole life. He's all full of wonder and joy and everything. Rocky, Avi, Vouch, like pretty decent kid, right? Likeable. There's just no way he's going to turn out to be the savior of all mankind. I, he, I, he just ain't. I mean, I don't know. The other day, I was like, dude, I want you to go pick up all the dog poop in the backyard. He didn't do it. I had to ask him a second time. So he's not perfect. Because I did have to ask him twice. Sometimes he like, cries or complains a little bit. Sometimes I'm like, hey, buddy, turn that off. And he's like, okay. And then he saves it and then turns it off. Even though the rule is as soon as we say turn it off, you have to turn it off. But that's a solid four or five seconds. It's technically disobedience in our house. He's not going to be the savior of the world. He's just not equipped. Let me tell you about the, the nature of my son. He's all man. Like he's, he's just, he's a person. Like you're a person. None of you are divine. I'm not divine. There's something truly unique that had to happen for this positioning to work. And no person could do it. Why could no person do it? Because the calamity is supernatural in scale, and the solution must come from outside the boundaries of the natural. The natural order of things is we screw things up, we cannot defeat time, it doesn't matter how hard you regret something, there is no atonement for what you got wrong. Once you got the thing wrong, once you did damage, once you hurt somebody, like it's just there. You can square it up with each other, you can have forgiveness, you can make it right, you can square accounts and you can move forward. But like any notion of existential perfection is gone. You're not. Neither am I. And also the physical world and other people's misdeeds, all of that affects us. It affects our bodies. It affects our lives, our minds. We contribute to the problem and we're victims of the problem simultaneously. And it shows in our faces, in our bodies, in our news feeds, in our tweets, in the things that we think when we're alone and when we're quiet. We're broken. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save anyone else. We cannot undo what has been done and what has been damaged. Our problem cannot be solved from inside the boundaries of the natural. If somebody were going to be rightly positioned to snatch up those metaphorical kids and perfectly stand in the right spot to save and deliver them from that metaphorical calamity, they got to be all God. They got to be all man. They have to be all God because they have to be big enough to do something about the problem. God is that. They gotta be all man because they gotta be close enough to care. Because they have to be close enough to be understood and to even be followed or acknowledged. Not as some random abstraction. The early Christians looked at texts like this and they marveled at Mary. And they marveled at Joseph. And they marveled at the incarnation. And the story and the narrative that goes with it, they marveled that it was the completion of the Old Testament, but they labored over nailing the language that the Bible was using to describe the nature of Jesus Christ because they understood what was at stake. You mess with who God holds out the Christ as being in any way, and now he's here. 
Close, he's almost positioned to deliver the metaphorical kids, but just out of arm's reach. Or he's over here and he knew what was gonna happen, but wasn't close enough or interested in doing anything about it. The perfect positioning, son of Abraham, son of David, son of a virgin, son of God, means that we gotta get the nature of Christ right. The smartest minds in all of Christianity got together like a dozen times to refine this language. And specifically, looking at this passage in 451 AD, a bunch of brilliant people said, we need to frame this in our own language so that there is no dispute about who exactly Christ is and what the stakes are. And so, in addition to a bunch of other stuff that they wrote, they said this. In all things, like unto us, without sin, Christ, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one of the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, those two natures are inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union of the natures, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophets, ba, da, 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 from the beginning, have declared concerning Him and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers handed down to us. And there might be some stuff in there that you're like, ah, that, that sounds like a, a, like a little different denomination or tradition or thread. Yes, different expressions of Christianity will put different emphases on different phrases here, but what we all strongly agree on is that is the biblical understanding of the nature of Christ. All God, all man, no confusion, no twisting it, no putting it in any kind of weird way that you know, like this is a new thing that's been created out of two things. All God, all man, and this is why it matters. Perfectly positioned to resolve what ails us. God's plan is brilliant and eternal and carefully, meticulously crafted. And every word of scripture indicates how that plays out magnificently. And it culminates in the birth of this little baby, in the birth of God become man. If he's God but not man, it doesn't work. If he's man but not God, it doesn't work. If he's neither, it doesn't work. He's just like us. He is born without sin, enabling him to pass every test we fail, to live a life without sin, and to give himself as a ransom for many on the cross. Simply put, the virgin birth matters on one level because well, the Bible says that it is this way. And if you say it is not that way, well, you're disagreeing with what the Bible says, even though it's miraculous and difficult. But more so than that opportunity to argue about this or that thing with somebody who might not believe it. What it really matters for is that wherever you're at, whether you're somebody who's steeped in this stuff and you've been around Christianity forever, whether you're somebody who's sizing it up just now and trying to make sense of the thing, if all of that is overwhelming, it boils down to this. There is one character in all of history who even claims, let alone actually can be, perfectly positioned to take us in our vulnerability and to save and to deliver and to fix the calamity that we deal with. And that is Jesus Christ, 
son of the virgin, son of Abraham, son of David, son of God. And this is a season where we are intended to marvel at that, where we're intended to reflect on that afresh every time it comes around, to internalize that and to let that reality of the unique positioning of God be something that we respond to and say, all right, I can't save myself from that calamity, but now I can see, I can read, I can tell there is one who's positioned to deliver and my hope and my trust is in him. Josh, you wanna take it over and pray for us? Thank you, man. Let's bow our heads. Oh God, it is so deep, so complex, and yet uh, simple enough that there is one who is um, able to sidestep our sin, able to bring the power of God into the world, able to bridge the gap between God and man, to reconcile our sin, to pay for our sin, to reconcile us to you, and that is Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for working in such a way that uh, it is revealed to us through your word. Um, and Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity in front of us to, um, to get in on it, to have Christ grab us and pull us to the exact spot that we need to be rescued from the calamity that's come and in some ways already come into our lives. And so we thank you, Lord, that you can do that. And we pray, Lord, that we would just be submissive to that, that we would marvel at you, that we would trust in Christ, that we would let him take hold of our lives and to make us new, to redeem what's broken, to save us from the wreckage that, uh, uh, that we've experienced and is still coming. So, Lord, we... Uh, we pray that you give us the ability to see that clearly, to understand it, and to bow our knees to you. God, we pray as we sing of your glory and your grace that you would give us hearts full of faith and wonder at this beautiful plan that you've put together and that you've done so for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.